You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, And you are listening to the second of what I hope will be three episodes uh, on the Southern Baptist Convention and sexual assault. Uh, In our previous episode, we talked to John Whitehead uh, about the uh, report on Southern Baptist Convention and sexual abuse. Uh, Today we have joining us on the show Matt Martins, uh, a former federal prosecutor, currently a partner uh, at an international national law firm who lives in Northern Virginia uh, and has been involved in uh, at least some Baptist legal matters, uh, which uh, hopefully uh, Mr. Martins will come back on at some point in the future and talk to us a little more about, uh, especially with, uh, with regard to some of the COVID restrictions. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, and you? Yeah, good, good. Uh, I appreciate you taking time to come on the show. I, I know you're a busy guy. Happy to do it. This this isn't uh, the topic of, of today's episode, but I do want to just ask you briefly. You wrote an article for the uh, the Baptist Press uh, in the wake of the report uh, on sexual assault in the Southern Baptist Convention. Can you just briefly tell us what you said in the article, uh, and then maybe uh, I'll, I'll have a follow-up question on that before we go to the main topic. Sure. I think the, the issue coming out of the report on the Sexual Abuse Task Force was what the convention's response should be to that, meaning should they establish in particular a list of pastors who had been credibly, pastors or other church workers who had been credibly accused of sexual misconduct. And there were, understandably, a lot of people were concerned about what the due process protections around that were. Scripture obviously speaks to issues of due process about being able to to confront accusers and to be heard, an opportunity to be heard in response to allegations. And so folks were concerned about whether the creation of this list would be consistent with what scripture teaches or or from which you could extrapolate principles of due process. And so uh, I think folks knew that I had uh, written a good deal on topics of justice and criminal process. Um, if people follow me on Twitter, they see that. And so uh, folks asked me what my view was and if I would be able to, if I'd be willing to express that view um, in an article. And I said, well, I need to understand what the process is around the creation of this list. And so spent some time speaking with folks to try to understand what was contemplated. Uh, um, and the, the focus was not, the controversy was not around whether someone would be included on a list if they were convicted or if they were found liable after trial. The real, dis, the real sticking point was, what do you do when someone's been accused, maybe even been accused by multiple people, um, you know, more than the two or three witnesses that scripture speaks about, but there, but it actually hasn't gone to a criminal trial. What do you do in that instance? You know, the, the, the issues um, sharply um, brought to a head when, let's say, for example, the accusers come out years later, perhaps because they were too traumatized at the time to speak about it. The statute of limitations is long since run, perhaps on a criminal charge uh, or on a civil suit. And so there isn't a venue for 
adjudicating the matter in the courts, but you still have to decide what are you going to do about this faster. And so folks um, were struggling with this, understandably. People, I think, in good faith on both sides were struggling with uh, how do we deal with the situation? No one, everyone wants to protect children. I assumed everyone in this debate wanted to protect children and others who are subject to the type of abuse. The real question was, how do we do this consistent with scripture? And so I wrote an article explaining what I understood to be the core of what the Bible requires in terms of due process, which is an opportunity to respond to the allegations. It doesn't require, I don't think scripture requires American style criminal trials, Um but it does require um, it does require that the person not uh, the person accused doesn't have to disprove the allegations. The person making the accusations has to prove them. They have to prove them to a reliable to to a reliable burden of proof. Um, and it has to be more than a single accuser. And there has to be an opportunity to respond to the the evidence put against you and what that respond means. You know, I think Christians could. Um, have a, a fair discussion about it. I don't think scripture is specific about that. And so I tried to lay out sort of those benchmarks uh, of what I thought scripture required and why I thought a system could be developed that would be consistent with those biblical standards. I think uh, one of the concerns uh, that that people had with uh, not just your article, but some of the conversations going on was, was not just the question of uh, accusation uh, and the rights of the accused, uh, uh, the protection of the uh, protection of people who'd been assaulted and the rights of accused. Obviously, that, that I, I like to think everyone is concerned with both of those things. Exactly. Um, particularly the attorneys who are writing back and forth on this. Uh, uh, but there's also the concern of being consistent with Baptist polity, right? Uh, yep. uh, the, the Southern and we we really hit this in the previous episode with John Whitehead. We we really hit. The Southern Baptist Convention is not the boss of all the Southern Baptist churches out there. Yep. Uh, so is there a way to have the convention maintain such a list while still preserving the integrity of, and autonomy of local churches? Uh, and and uh, as you as you pointed out, you know everyone uh, everyone is is to some extent okay with a list of people who've been accused and uh, uh, convicted in court, uh, found liable. Would uh, would the concerns be set to rest with Baptist polity if? Uh, if a list of offenders included both people convicted by uh, you know, state courts or, or federal courts or whatever, uh, and people uh, disciplined out of a church, uh, would including church discipline uh, protect that local church autonomy? They're the ones doing the church, right? The, the convention has mm -hmm. no power to do that. Uh, it would still give you some kind of trial, some kind of hearing, would also put all of the force of that on that local church. Uh, would, would a list of that sort be be acceptable or are we still still violating both polity and uh still left with that concern uh, of uh the rights of the accused and the uh the safety and health of, of people who have been assaulted yeah and that's essentially what i understood this to be doing was in a sense creating a list of people who've been disciplined by their church right the investigation that was supposed to be done was not going to be done by the convention it was going to be done by a a investigator who was retained by the particular church or for the church if the church, for example, lacked the resources. And so that was part of how I thought about it was essentially you have church A, where the pastor, for example, is working, is adjudicating as they should, um, at least for church discipline purposes, the allegation. And then they're telling other churches, this is our adjudication. What other churches do with that? 
um, is a matter of their autonomy. Um, and but it, but that's true every time. I mean, if if my church disciplines someone else, uh, someone out, and that person decides they're going to move to another town and get, try to join another Baptist church, that church has to decide what do we do about the adjudication of excommunication by another church. I mean, that's faced all the time. I, I think as a general rule, it should be honored. Um, and the person should not be permitted to join the membership of the next church absent repentance. But that doesn't mean that any church is losing autonomy. Uh, I, I don't take that as a loss of autonomy. I don't take that as church A exercising control over church B where the person moves. It's just a function of we have to determine for to use a legal term, what full faith and credit or not to attribute to adjudications by other congregations. Well, we could we could talk about that all day, but we should get to the main topic uh, yeah. that you're here for. Uh, so, uh, in the wake of this report on the Southern Baptist Convention, the Department of Justice in early August, I think, uh, announced that it is uh, investigating the Southern Baptist Convention and its entities uh, for. Uh, well, we're we're not entirely sure. The subpoena is not fully public yet. Uh, the we have a statement from the heads of the entities. Uh, saying that they are going to comply with it, uh, with this investigation, and that it has something to do with this report on sexual assault. Uh, can you, uh, can you, uh, first, if you know uh, more details than I do about this, can you, can you tell us what the investigation is? Uh, and bar barring that, can you kind of walk us through this process? Uh, uh, what would kick off a DOJ investigation, uh, and then how will that that proceed? So I don't have any facts about the particular investigation, so I can't speak to that. What I can talk about is how investigations normally occur when conducted by the Southern District of New York or, or otherwise by DOJ. This one's being conducted by the U.S. Attorney's Office, as I understand it, in the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. So normally a grand jury investigation would, um, as a technical matter, involve subpoenas. So a grand jury could issue subpoenas to either an entity for documents or to individuals for testimony or to individuals for documents. And that is often where the investigation will start. Let's see what the documents say. And then they can decide who they want to interview based on the review of those documents. Well, what, sorry, what, what would get us to that point? I mean, what would get uh, an attorney or a grand jury or whatever, what would make them investigate in the first place? So, so the practical reality, so the, the, what the law says is a grand jury can investigate for good reason or no reason. Um, they can. <laughs> Right. They can they can investigate because they have suspicion that a crime has occurred. They can investigate because they want to assure themselves that one hasn't occurred. Um, they don't have to have, for example, probable cause or some type of um, predication, so to speak, to start an investigation. Now, the Department of Justice has policies that you don't just willy nilly start investigations. You, you should have some type of predication. So when people talk about a DOJ investigation for, versus a grand jury investigation, the, in theory, the grand jury is investigating, right? In theory, the subpoenas, the only entity with the authority to issue subpoenas is the grand jury. DOJ can't issue subpoenas. It's a subpoena from the grand jury. But the grand jury doesn't know what to investigate. It's, it's 20 lay people. What is, the, what is the cause of the formation of a grand jury then? Grand jury is always sitting, always sitting. Okay. So – Perpetual. So under the U.S. Constitution, in order to charge someone with a crime, um, you have to pass through a federal crime. It has to go through a grand jury. Uh, so that's pursuant to the Constitution. So a charge has to be ultimately passed on by a grand jury. And so the grand jury has to investigate. So every federal crime 
unless someone waives the right to indictment by a grand jury, say, for example, if they're cooperating and they waive that right and just plead guilty to a bill of information rather than indictment, an indictment has to have a, a, a grand jury issue it. And so in every federal district in the country, uh, which you know, 93 or 94 federal judicial districts around the country, there is always a grand jury sitting, not every day. Um, when I when I was a federal prosecutor in North Carolina, the grand jury sat one week every month. And so they would be formed every year in January that people the notice would go out from the court calling people to a year long jury service one week a month. And folks were thrilled to be selected, <laughs> as you can imagine. And they would come in and we would uh, for a few days, sometimes for the whole week, present them with the cases. Either we would be calling witnesses um, or we would be uh, uh, calling fact witnesses like individuals who knew about a crime, or sometimes we would just be calling the federal agents in to uh, recount the evidence that they had gathered and then ask the grand jury to return an indictment. So there's, it's not as if a grand jury usually is convened for a particular case. A grand jury is always sitting, and the prosecutor can go to the, the grand jury and say, we're going to investigate X. Would you issue subpoenas or, frankly, they can just issue the subpoenas uh, and then return the information. They don't actually generally don't need the grand jury's permission to issue the subpoenas. They issue them as the legal advisor to the grand jury and then present the fruits of that subpoena to the grand jury. So it's uh, it's unlikely that a grand jury was reading the news and encountered this, this story about the Southern Baptist Convention and decided on their own they want to launch this investigation. Presumably, it was an attorney in the DOJ. Correct. That's how normally the, the grand jury almost never, maybe even maybe even I could say never initiates the, the investigation. It's initiated by the legal advisor to the grand jury, who is the prosecutor. All right. So I'm, I'm sorry. I interrupted you with, with that because no. I, I don't know how federal grand juries work. So there we go. Yeah. So a grand jury would, you know, grand jury technically, but the prosecutor practically is issuing a subpoena and that subpoena then goes out uh, to the person saying, please produce the following documents. And usually they're written very broad and there's a negotiation over what you really want, what you need. Let's narrow this down so it's not burdensome so we can respond quickly. And then the documents are produced and then when the prosecutors have had time to review the documents, may conclude that they'll either call witnesses before the grand jury or the prosecutors might decide we will interview the person. You know, so an interview might occur in the prosecutor's office with an FBI agent present taking notes rather than in the grand jury room with the, with a court reporter taking down a verbatim transcript. And then the prosecutors can then decide to present the results of those interviews, like they could call the FBI agent to the grand jury and say, did you interview so-and-so? Give me a summary of what they said. Or you could decide to actually bring the witness into the grand jury even after the interview and have the grand jurors hear from them directly. It can happen either way. I know at some state levels, the, the grand juries are actually allowed to question witnesses themselves. Is that uh, jurors are actually allowed to ask questions Does that happen at the federal level too? Yeah. Yeah. Generally, the questioning is led by the prosecutor in the first instance, but it is, it is in my experience, often the case that the grand jurors will themselves ask questions directly of the witness. I would always end my time by saying, after I asked my questions, do any of the grand jurors have any questions? And they would then, if they did, uh, ask ask their questions and the witness would answer them. 
What kind of evidence uh, is is a grand jury looking for in a case like this? Like what what would result in them saying, all right, this this needs to go forward to an actual trial versus now ah, there's there's nothing here, there's not enough here. Uh, let's let's turn things away. So technically, as a legal matter, the the grand jury would need to find probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed. So it's not it's something more than suspicion. It's something less than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's something less than preponderance. So it's kind of an undefined. <laughs> I mean, sure. there's there's definitions, but I, it's something less than 51 percent certainty. Um, but it's something more than a bare guess. So they would have collected evidence that would provide probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. And then if they find that the prosecutor prosecutor will ask them to vote on an indictment that they don't draft typically, but the prosecutor would draft and would ask the grand jury to vote on that indictment, meaning vote on whether or not they believe the evidence that's been presented to them satisfies, uh, uh, supports the finding of probable cause on those charges. Well, in, in, in this particular case, we're, we're in kind of the, the interesting position of knowing that crimes have been committed uh, but also, given the nature of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and the turnover in leadership and so on, the, the people who committed those crimes are now largely gone. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, I think we talked in the previous episode about Johnny Hunt uh, being accused of uh, sexual assault. Uh, he is no longer president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I don't think he's in any kind of position of leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, many of the people who may have been in a position to do anything like cover that up if they had known about it are also gone. So what what does that look like with an entity that has as much turnover as the Southern Baptist Convention is? I mean, surely just saying, well, all of those people on our board of directors have been fired, so, you know, we're not guilty anymore. That can't be an answer. But all of the people who did the crime are gone. Like, wh wh how do we navigate that? So there's a bunch of layers to this. So let's start with yeah. layer number one. First of all, you have to have a federal crime if it's a federal grand jury as opposed to a state crime. So, again, back to uh, constitutional law 101 or civics 101, the federal government is a government of enumerated powers. Uh, so the state got state courts can or state um, governments can make crimes of all sorts. Uh, they don't have to have an explicit authorization in their state constitution uh, giving the state the power to uh, giving state what's called the police power, the power to uh, police the populace, so to speak. Um, but the federal government does need that. There's no general police power at the federal level, meaning the Congress would have to pass a law that would criminalize something and do it pursuant to one of the powers that's been specifically granted to the to the federal government in the U.S. Constitution. So the most frequent uh, one used for the criminalizing uh, the federal criminal code is the, the commerce power. So the federal government has the power to regulate commerce between the states, and that is used uh, to to provide a justification for a lot of uh, federal crimes. So for just to take one easy example, federal drug crimes, there's no the state can any state can uh, through its normal police power outlaw drugs. But there's no authority in the federal constitution for Congress to outlaw drugs. So Congress has to argue or, or base its outlawing of drugs on the notion that drug trafficking is necessarily commerce, commercial transactions that's occurring between or across state lines uh, or across international lines. So that would be uh, 
just one example. So, so first, the first question is, if we have a federal grand jury, what's the federal crime? Not is there a crime? What's the federal crime as opposed to a state crime? Most sexual assault type crimes would be state crimes. There'd be no authority whatsoever for the federal government to criminalize that and hasn't. Um, crossing state lines to engage in certain types of sexual uh, assault could be a federal crime. So first of all, you have the question of what's the federal crime. The second question you have is what is the authority under what circumstances is an entity criminally responsible for the conduct of the individuals in or in leadership in the entity? Uh, so uh, so I, I, you know, I work for a law firm. But if I if I kill someone in my private life, my, my law firm can't be charged. Right? You work for a university. If you rob a bank, your university doesn't get charged with robbing, a, you know, with robbing a bank just because you happen to work for that entity. So the question becomes, in what circumstances is an entity responsible for actions committed by the individuals who work for that entity? And. The answer to that at a very high level is that you have to be committing the act pursuant to your duties as an employee and for the benefit of the entity. So those are the at a high level and layman's language. Those are the requirements that you right. do it as part of your duties and for the benefit of the entity, which which I don't think anyone thinks that here. Right. I mean, as far as I know, I don't know that anyone. Um, and again, the entity. It could be different entities. So what we're talking about, a church is different than the Southern Baptist Convention, right? right. Like this is a critical part of the Southern Baptist Convention polity is that the the convention is not the churches and the churches are not the convention. They are separate legal entities. And so to, to draw this out a little bit, what someone might do as misconduct in as a pastor in a local church is not something that the convention is is legally responsible for. I think your example about, you know, if I, as a university employee, rob someone, uh, and this is this is a general general legal question, uh, if, I, if I rob a bank and then the president of the university uses his power as president of the university to cover that up, uh, to protect the reputation of the university or whatever, uh, and then quits his job and we get a new president, right? Uh, again, is there institutional liability still there? Like, at what point is the institution somehow responsible? Yeah, so... There's again talking theoretically. I don't know anything about. I've not about, yet robbed a bank. Let's let's. I see. don't know anything about your bank robbery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so there's a federal crime called misprison of a felony. Uh, so misprison is at a again at a high level, a covering up. Um, it has to be something affirmative. Um, it can't. So if I learn that a crime happened I, and I take some affirmative step to let's imagine I had nothing to do with it, but I learned that you robbed this bank. And so I um, take some affirmative step to conceal that. Even as someone having I, I don't that that alone could be a crime. It's very, very rarely charged. Um, but there is this notion of misprison. But but if I learn you rob a bank and I just decide eh, I'm not going to call the police, I like Coyle, he's my friend, um, you know, if the police figure it out, good for them. But I'm just not going to say anything. That's not misprison. Um, misprison requires, as the courts have interpreted, some affirmative act of concealment. And is the uh, 
I, I assume the individual is liable and not the entity. So if I, again, the question would be, did I, ta did I take that affirmative act in right. the course of my duties and for the benefit of my, my entity, my employer? So if I, if I took some affirmative act to conceal your bank robbery in my role, uh, acting as an employee of an, an entity, and I did it to further the interests of that entity, I guess in theory, um, there's an argument that someone committed mis that the entity committed misprison. But if I just happen to be an employee, um, and I, I take some affirmative act, but I don't do it as part of my official duties and I don't do it to further the entity's interest, then that wouldn't be institutional misprison. Uh, and now we're, we're deep into the law here. Uh, I assume, I guess I'm not a lawyer. Maybe we're not deep in at all. Maybe this is all L1 stuff. Uh, so what what should we expect to see coming next uh, from uh, from the DOJ uh, or from the the Southern Baptist entities? So usually grand jury investigations are secret. Um, the prosecutors are not allowed, and the grand jury is not allowed to reveal to the public any grand jury material. There's actually a rule that requires that grand jury investigations be conducted confidentially. Um, in order to preserve the integrity of the investigation, for example, you don't want witness A. Um, and witness B aligning their stories. Uh, you also don't want witness A being threatened because they told the grand jury something. Uh, so the witnesses are allowed to and are legally protected in their right to speak with the grand jury in secret and the grand jurors have to keep their deliberation secret. That's also to protect the reputations of people who are investigated but not accused yet. Do the witnesses have to keep things secret? They do not. The witnesses... The witnesses are are not legal, at least in the federal system, are not legally prohibited from discussing their testimony to, in, in the public. But the grand jury and the prosecutors can't reveal it. So essentially, it's the witness's choice, not the um, not the government's choice as to whether or not they'll disclose what they said to the grand jury. So if we know anything at all from the next steps, it'll be from witnesses and not from. Uh, assuming everyone's obeying the law, right, and no one's leaking to the press or whatever. Yeah, and, and again, the the key is the government's not prohibited from disclosing its investigation. It's it's prohibited from disclosing what happens in front of the grand jury. So this is a, a distinction that probably explains why you often see leaks in the press. So, for example, if the DOJ interviews a witness in their conference room. There's not a legal prohibition necessarily on leaking what happened in that interview. But if that witness is instead testifying in front of the grand jury, as opposed to being interviewed in the prosecutor's office, that is protected. So there's a, a, a an important legal distinction, at least important for prosecutors, as to what they can or can't publicly disclose. But even aside from that, it's generally DHJ policy to not comment publicly on ongoing investigations. And if no one's charged, they, they close the investigation and move on. The, the, the federal system is at least reasonably um, careful about preserving that distinction and that, and that protection, that privacy. Um, once, uh, once the investigation is closed, is are, are any of the materials from the investigation subject to uh, the Freedom of Information Act? Like, could no. do we have a right to see them? Not stuff that was in front of the grand jury, because that's governed by a court rule. Um, 
the investigative files of the prosecutor that involves material, not grand jury material, uh, possibly could be subject to FOIA. I'm not a FOIA expert, and the answer to that is it's a maybe. Um, depends on whether the government asserts continuing um, privacy interests of a sort that are covered by the exceptions to FOIA. So, if the if the uh, if the grand jury and the prosecutor decide to move forward, what what will we what will we see then? What what should we expect then? And what should we expect to see if they decide not to? Well, when a grand jury moves forward, they're only they're really the only way they move forward is through an indictment. Uh, so that's how grand juries speak. I mean, in theory, they could issue a report, but that's essentially a non-existent reality uh, possibility. So if a grand jury moves forward, they return an indictment, which will, which is an indictments are unsealed in court. The allegations are made known to the public and the person and the person then can defend them in a trial. And if they decide not to, do we get an announcement of some kind or do they just quietly close everything and we, we never hear about it again? The grand jury doesn't issue an announcement. Sometimes you will hear either because DOJ will announce that they've closed an investigation or DOJ will tell the subject of an investigation that the investigation has been closed. And that person then may have an interest in telling the world that the investigation has been closed. So in high profile investigations, it often one way or another comes to light that the investigation has been closed with no charges. Uh, well, is there is there anything else that our listeners need to know about the process overall or this this investigation specifically as much as you know anything about this one? That's that's probably as much detail as anybody needs to know about how grand jury investigations work. Uh, and anything else we need to know about uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and its its response either to the DOJ investigation or in general to the circum, uh, to this this particular issue? Well, I would say that an investigation of a church or of a religious organization raises constitutional questions uh, under the First Amendment. So there's case law going back 150 years that matters of church polity, matters of church governance, including the decision to hire, fire, discipline, discharge, or retain ministers in particular, is not subject to government oversight. So this most recently has come up in the context of, for example, federal anti-discrimination statutes where uh, ministers have brought lawsuits under federal anti-discrimination laws saying I was discharged from my role as a minister in violation of Americans with Disabilities Act or Title VII's prohibition against gender discrimination. And the federal courts have said, while those laws generally apply, they do not apply to ministers and churches' decisions whether to hire and fire ministers. We are not going to have the federal courts sussing out the reasons and passing judgment on the reasons that a religious organization chose to hire or fire ministers. That's entirely within their discretion and is not subject to review by the courts. It's an absolute right to hire and fire, discipline, discharge, retain, or terminate a minister as you see fit. And this has come up in the, you know, most frequently in the employment discrimination context. But the rationale, I think, applies more broadly. Um, and I would argue prohibits a federal government investigation of whether or not a church appropriately responded to 
what allegations against a minister. So, again, I want to be, be very careful what I'm separating. The law provides, the Constitution provides no protection whatsoever for a minister who engages in sexual abuse of a criminal nature. The law allows that minister to be prosecuted. That minister should be prosecuted. And I think as a a matter of morality, if a church learns about it, they should report it to the authorities promptly. But that's a separate question from can the church be prosecuted for or a religious organization. And so the First Amendment isn't limited to just churches necessarily, but would cover religious organizations like the Southern Baptist Convention. Can the church itself be prosecuted because of how it responded to the allegation, because it didn't discharge the minister, because it didn't tell the next church, um, because it didn't believe the allegations or, or whatever the case may be. I think that is a very complicated First Amendment question. There, there's no protection for the prosecutor, for the end of the person who engaged in the misconduct. I think there is First Amendment protection um, that could apply to an, an effort to prosecute a church for how it disciplined, discharged, terminated or retained a minister accused uh, of of such misconduct. And that's where I think there's. This this investigation, I'll just say, makes me uneasy because I don't know that the DOJ has acknowledged or is honoring that line, which I think the First Amendment requires. Well, depending on what they're investigating. Right. (laughs) I mean, well, right. But back to our point, there's no it's it's hard for me to understand how the DOJ could be investigating the particular allegations of sexual assault or abuse because a, it's most likely not a federal crime. It'd be a state crime. And B, um, that would not have been a, an action that you could normally hold the entity res- legally responsible for, meaning it was not taken in the course of pro- even if it was taken during the course of professional duties as a minister, it was not taken for the benefit. And that's an important element for the benefit of the church. It might have, someone might have committed it as a minister, meaning they abused a parishioner, but they didn't engage in that conduct for the benefit of the ministry. And so I don't see what the theory would be for holding a church, much less a denomination, criminally responsible for the sexual abuse by an individual pastor. And so then you would necessarily have to be looking at how the church responded in disciplining that pastor. And that is the particular conduct that I think um, that type of investigation to me raises very serious First Amendment concerns. As uh, as you point out, there there may be state laws in question, although I would imagine even those would still raise First Amendment concerns, depending on what you're looking at. Uh, and I, But just on that, I don't think that, I mean, if a state is looking, if it, let's say a state which does outlaw, for example, sexual assault, um, there'd be no First Amendment. Every state does, right? There'd be no First Amendment concerns whatsoever with a state grand jury, police department, whatever the case may be, investigating an individual pastor for engaging in that conduct. I I do think there would be serious First Amendment concerns with a state investigating how a church responded to that conduct. Because it it comes very close to or at least poses the risk 
of the government second guessing a church's disciplinary response, a discipline of its pastor. Now, now I, I think the uh, the careful line between those two things, there might be mandatory reporter laws. Yes. Right? At, at, at what point are you stepping on church polity, First Amendment stuff versus this is sexual assault and it's a crime and it has to be reported by authorities? Do authorities. So again, a minister has to, should as a matter of morality, is required to as a matter of law in most states, report mis- uh, assault that he, he or she learns of. Um, that doesn't raise First Amendment concerns. Sure. Um, what a, what a, a, but disciplining or investigating a church because, for example, it didn't fire a minister uh, for engaging in, or, or who's alleged to have engaged in misconduct or didn't notify a subsequent congregation, I think that raises First Amendment concerns. And let me be clear. I think a church has a moral obligation to investigate these issues. In fact, this goes exactly with where we started this discussion, which is about the article I wrote. The reason I think it's so important that churches police this, the reason I feel so strongly that churches should create these lists is because, in part, the government can't police these issues under how I understand the First Amendment. The government is limited in its ability to police how churches respond to allegations against their pastor, which creates a greater moral obligation on churches to respond appropriately in policing their pastors. And and that's a good transition into what we'll hopefully, uh, assuming that our uh, my third guest uh, continues to be willing to be interviewed, uh, where I hope to go in the last episode, what should happen within a church? Uh, what should church discipline look like, uh, especially when we're dealing with legal issues, uh, when the national national entity is involved, uh, when the Department of Justice is involved? Uh, how do believers in local churches navigate this? Anything else you think our listeners need to know about this? Otherwise, I'll, uh, I'll let you go and get back to your, your day. I don't have anything else. It's been a pleasure being on here, and I've enjoyed discussing it with you. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a walk in that ribbon of high